In this episode of Frame Breakers, we sit down with Anthony Canada, the CEO and co-founder of Audience Plus. Anthony is one of the most well-rounded marketing leaders and founders I've ever met. He has spent his entire career in venture-backed startups and worked at some of the fastest-growing companies that you've ever heard of. We spent a lot of time talking about the importance of own media for B2B software companies and how important that can be in driving revenue for you in the future. We also talked through the struggles that come with content production and how hard it is to scale and be consistent with. Anthony's got a really good point of view on this because he's seen it across all of his customers and it's something that they're trying to build in-house as well at Audience Plus. We also have a really honest conversation about his experience at venture back startups and how that's shaped him. He was one of the earliest employees at Gainsight and eventually became their CMO. He also had a wild ride at a company called Hopin, where they were an event marketing company that really capitalized on COVID doing remote events. And they went through some insane growth, like their valuation went from nothing to billions of dollars in the span of 12 or 18 months. And we talk about how that's impacting how he's building his company at Audience Plus. If you get just a little bit of value from this, the best thing you do is pay it forward by sending it to a friend that you think might enjoy as well. As bonus points, you can always give us a thumbs up on YouTube, subscribe to that channel, or give us a rating on Spotify. All right, let's get into the episode. All right, wonderful. I am here with Anthony Kanata today. Anthony is the co-founder and CEO of Audience Plus, a venture-backed startup that he is going to explain all about. Um, backed by some of my, my friends over at uh, Emerges Capital, GTM Fund, and Foreign Ventures. Um, he was also previously the CMO at Hopin, CMO at Front, where he added 10 million of ARR in less than 18 months. And he's also, his, his most maybe illustrious move was joining Gainsight in the very early days where he helped him grow from zero to nearly $100 million in ARR and eventually became the CMO there as well. Anthony, welcome. Thank you so much. Appreciate having me, Jason. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you today. So, uh, let's start with the Genesis story of Audience Plus. Why was this the idea that you decided to pursue? Yeah, I, I definitely, it's funny, like looking back, never wanted to be a founder, never planned to to be the CEO of a company. Um, but looking back, this is sort of the, um, feels like a master's thesis of my career because um, as I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, I got dropped into the head of marketing role and had to figure everything out from a place of first principles. And the playbook that we ended up developing at Gainsight was all about building thought leadership, um, but also using thought leadership to grow revenue. Uh, and at the time in 2013, this felt like very nascent um, early days uh, and even countercultural to the kind of outbound cold calling Google pay-per-click kind of strategies that that have been happening for, for you know, two decades. So, um, we did that pretty successfully at Gainsight using content and community and more consumer-like go-to-markets uh, as a way to break through the noise, but then also build relationship with this, this role, this customer success kind of function that existed. Um, and so I brought that playbook with me to uh, Front and most recently to Hopin. And it was at Hopin that I started to see this. This was really going to be kind of the next generation of inbound marketing. This was not going to, no longer going to be kind of a, a fringe you know, um, you know, type of strategy, but this was going to be core to how we were going to grow revenue in the next chapter. And the tools that we've used, like historically, whether it's our marketing automation stack, our CMS, these are all built on assumptions that were like, like architectural assumptions that were two decades old. And so there wasn't sort of this next generation of HubSpot, this next generation um, of sort of the CMS that uh, helped us, you know, distribute rich media like video like podcasts like this one like live events uh, collect subscribers much like we see with substack in the creator space 
and then run machine learning models on that first party data set around our audience to help us understand how all of that thought leadership is actually driving revenue. Um, and so it felt like someone had to build this thing, not to make it seem like a heroic kind of move, but, and I felt like I sort of had seen the movie before on how, uh, on what, how the market was going to shift. And so that's kind of what led to, to the origin story of, of starting business. I, I think that makes tons of sense. Um, was there any kind of like aha moment in your background, whether it was at Gainsight or later on where you were like, oh yeah, like the thought leadership play, like that is the future and that's where we need to be going. Yeah. The original kind of aha moment was very early at Gainsight. So we were still like 20 employees or something, just raised the series A and we hosted an event, um, a conference. And that was sort of like, like, why would you host a conference when you're that small had like five customers. Um, but we, we created this event that was all about the problem that our persona was facing. Um, not about us, not about our technology, not about our products, all about the problem. And we, you know, dressed it up from a branding perspective. We got a cool venue. We got some great speakers to come and over 300 people showed up again for a nothing company. Um, and for a year one event and, um, the beyond the hard stats, there was this feeling in the room of like, oh my gosh, I'm finally around other people who are going through what I'm going through. And we've all may maybe seen this, you know, in, in some ways in, in our own kind of marketing journeys. But there was kind of this moment where we all looked around and said, like, what if we just kept doing this? Like, we can't host a conference every quarter, but like, what if we scaled it in different ways, like a virtual program, like a, you know, ongoing kind of content series, like a podcast and made it all about them. Like, would could we benefit? Could Would they eventually buy software? Let's find out. And so we just kept serving this persona in any way that we could. Uh, and over time, what we found is, you know, because of the relationships we were building, um, you know, when they, when they were ready to buy software, they came to us first. You said something there that I'm very intrigued by. You said we kept serving the persona in any way that we could. So what I'm gathering from that is, you didn't necessarily know the direction it was going to take, but you knew that you saw the value. You saw the value in that room. You saw that people were engaged with this type of content and being around their peers. And from there, you were able to probably make more tactical decisions, but also just collect leads as they came in because they you were building a trusted voice and trusted audience. That's right. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, we didn't even know what how the product was going to evolve. We had like a hypothesis, um, but we just kept engaging with the audience and through that we were learning so it wasn't totally a self selfish act right like we were learning what messaging was working what problems we should be solving with our with our products um even on the go-to-market side the different kind of mix of of channels that would be helpful for them versus just making an assumption around you know search marketing or some of these things that are, are the traditional playbook so yeah it, it was very much like you know an exploration more than it was um you know, uh, a genius plan. Uh, but in, in so doing, I think we've built a great company and, and kind of landed, planted the seed for what I think is sort of, you know, in, in many ways now something we all should be doing, uh, as we market. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like, that's, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. It's like, it's very, uh, affirmational for me because that's exactly what I'm trying to do with this podcast is speak with a bunch of marketing leaders and, I'm realizing I'm learning a bunch from them also. And 
Like I'm sure some of these will turn into potential business down the road, but like the worst case scenario is that I'm learning a ton and then I can take these learnings as education to my other clients. Um, so, and I, I'm, I'm excited specifically to talk to you because you're selling to marketers as well, right? So you, you and I are thinking a lot of the same ways or about the same types of things. So who of your current clients right now do you think is doing a, a great job of building this kind of own media and, and using both like audience plus and just the concepts that you're trying to deliver to the world? There's a lot. Um, several are, are, are sort of a different phases of the kind of adoption life cycle, but the one that, you know, that I think stands out is a company called Lavender. Um, they sell to, uh, the sales kind of persona. And what I love about how Lavender is thinking about this is they, they're an earlier stage business, but they're starting all in. They're like, look, we're not going to, you know, go play the long tail SEO game, you know, all these sorts of things. We're going to go direct to our audience, build a direct relationship with them. And they use episodic video content to, to do that. So they have shows that they're running, um, and everything from, you know, kind of competitive you know, breakdowns to a part in the interruption ESPN style, like, you know, breakdown show to this thing called three minute sales school. It's a show about puppets. It's crazy or using puppets. Um, but in so doing, they've built this like unbelievable brand for a very young company. Uh, and they're using all of that engagement, um, to help fuel their, their, their revenue. So they're, they're the ones that I, I love to call out because, um, we're seeing kind of a window to the future when we look at Lavender because they're all in. Uh, they're all into this as the primary function of of content marketing. Yeah, they'll do they'll do the SEO stuff on the side. It's table stakes and it's it's important. But this is where all their energy is going. It's where their their time and focus is going. And um, I think that's kind of how we'll, we'll all be headed here in the next uh, next couple of years. Yeah, it's and I, like I I took notice of Lavender early days and I don't know how soon they were working with you guys or how soon they have these concepts in their head, but they clearly stand out with everything they do from a branding perspective and the content they create. Um, and it's be like, they are what I would say from like a traditional to future scope of marketing. Like they are the furthest I've seen from like a SaaS company, right? On that side of the future. And so I'm really excited to see how this turns out for them over the next probably like six to 12 months, because that's probably when you'll really start to see the dividends. Um, but yeah, they're definitely, they are, are paving their own path. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. There's other examples for not quite as, uh, all in, you know, as, as into the future, but I think they're a good one to call out for us to learn from. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so too. Um, so you've talked about people buying for emotional reasons instead of logical reasons. So when you're selling to marketing leaders and founders, what are the emotional levers that you're trying to pull on? Yeah, it's, it's a good one. I mean, I think part of this, that whole kind of observation, um, well, a few different things. One is uh, Edelman released releases data every year on the, the trust index and this idea that people buy uh, products from companies that they have a shared sense of beliefs and values. So there's an emotional construct there. The whole Simon Sinek, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Emotions are at the core of, of purchasing decisions. And I think in B2B, we've kind of just like ignored that fact for, for a very long time. So for us in our journey, um, you know, we started the company with this like very aspirational message. Like every company is becoming a media company. This is what the future looks like, community-led growth. 
And yeah, I'm, I'm generally a very positive person. And so that felt very natural. Um, and then in our early testing with some of our advisors some CMOs that I'm friends with, they're like, this is tone deaf in 2023. Like there is no like optimism right now. Like the reality is our budgets are slashed. Expectations are higher than they've ever been before. The channels that we're used to executing are no longer working and we're, we need ideas. We need fresh ideas. Everyone's talking about efficient growth. Our CFO is pushing us. So there's this feeling of, of that we've lost control. Like marketers have lost control of our budgets, of our teams, of our abilities to our ability to impact revenue. And so as we were kind of starting to not pivot, but like rethink, okay, well, well, how should we introduce this problem? How should we talk about the problem? How should we show up as a brand? There was something very emotional about this idea of taking back control, taking back control of our ability to uh, even, you know, email our audience or reach our audience, like LinkedIn, all these tools, right? There's algorithms that are throttling access to our very audience that have elected to follow us. And so it's very like, you know, there, there, there's something around that bigger idea. Now, I don't, I don't think control is going to be like the, you know, 10 year kind of story for audience plus, but very much now we're saying, Hey, by, by building this direct relationship with your audience, you can effectively control distribution. You have the first party engagement data. So you have more control over what is working and what is not working from a production or distribution perspective. And also you can see the impact of all of that, all of that engagement on revenue and tell a better story to your finance leaders. And that gives you this better sense of control in a season where we don't have much of it. Um, so anyway, that, that's, that's what we're going with. I mean, I don't know if it's, it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see, but so far it's been resonating with, with the markers we've been talking to. I think that that makes a lot of sense, right? Every marketing leader I'm talking to, right Their their budgets have stayed the same or gotten have been decreased, right? But the the expectations are the same or higher. And um, and so I think that resonates a lot. But I guess here lies maybe the the next problem is they still need to get approval from finance, right? In many cases. And finance wants to see numbers. And right, like the the concept of people owning their own media and driving traffic to their own sites or platforms that, that they own makes tons of sense. But right, people are still people still spend more time on the massive platforms, right, than they do individual, especially like enterprise SaaS websites. So I, I'm curious, what are the most common objections that you guys are facing and, and how are you trying to deal with them? Yeah. Well, let me address the thing you mentioned on, on this, on the sort of people are in other places, right? Like how, like that's an important kind of thing. And, and the person that I've learned a lot from about this topic is Alex Lieberman. He's the co-founder of Morning Brew. He talks about the audience funnel, um, which is very different than the, we think about the funnel in B2B marketing. He thinks about it through a lens of rented, owned, and monetized. Rented being, again, anywhere where we don't own that relationship, we're renting access through a third-party algorithm. So it could be LinkedIn and social media, could be content networks like YouTube or Spotify, and it could be um, you know Google search, like anywhere where we can't, you know, we're reliant on a third party. And the first step in this whole owned media journey that we're kind of evangelizing is you have to be great at rented. <laughs> like rented is the top of funnel. So you have to be great at LinkedIn. You'll be posting consistently, leveraging short form video clips, like all of these things that are going to help drive engagement on platform. The difference in the old way versus the new way is in the old way, we'd have like, I, I would have like a junior 
community marketer, social media marketer reporting somewhere in deep in the product marketing org or something running our social. But social is now the tip of the spear from a demand perspective in this next chapter. It's the, the most strategic um, way to acquire audience ultimately um, into your funnel. So the intention has to shift to deplatforming your followers from these other rented spaces into owned subscribers. So there's a very coordinated kind of distribution strategy that is modern. Uh, consumer media folks have, have really kind of, I think, uh, uh, you know, helped kind of lead the pack, I guess, in terms of understanding how this could work really well. In B2B, we just haven't really invested in it. But I think that's where you do see, going back to Lavender and others, companies that do it really, really well are able to break through the noise. And in doing so, are driving traffic successfully and building owned uh, uh, followers. So I think, you know, from a pushback perspective, I've heard that one a little bit too. So I think, you know, we need to, there's some education that, that we need to do around uh, this idea of how rented is sort of step one in the own media, um, uh, you know, playbook. But um, the other thing I think is just, um, if people think that video and podcasts, all these things are like really expensive and they take a long time in order to, to bear fruit. And, you know, from a production perspective, um, you know, I don't know, like it's not that expensive right now where I'm on my laptop, you know, we're streaming from two different uh, states, I think, you know, across the country. Um, and, and it's good, but I don't think people, you know, especially in this next generation care as much about high, high quality production. They care more about the authenticity of the discussion. Uh, and so I think, you know, the cost of getting started is a lot lower than what people perceive uh, it is, especially for um, the more emerging formats in video and audio. Um, and second is when we talk about this stuff taking a long time, typically that's because we're talking about rented distribution where, you know, you got to get enough episodes live on Spotify to get enough people to start engaging with it. And there's a lot of truth to that. But when your content is owned, um, or at least when you're driving a lot of your intention to an owned um, platform, the feedback loop is actually pretty quick because you're starting to get signal like, hey, this person from a target account listened to this podcast episode. Um, and again, I'm not saying take it off of Spotify, but when we're emailing and we're posting on LinkedIn, let's send the traffic to an owned kind of surface instead. Um, that is a good uh, indication of you know a commercial conversation that could be had. Uh, so I do think the feedback loops are a lot shorter when it's owned media, uh, when, when your content is hosted from an owned perspective. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? You are, when, when you can get shorter feedback loops, right? That, that the time for that, the time to value for that feedback loop is really important. And if you can show people that they can then use that to drive revenue, that's where you can really start to tilt the conversation in their favor because like content and i've i've had this argument with many people over time um my my former ceo ceo and i who i love dearly we we talked about this a lot about the value of producing content and i mean we were a bootstrap company and it was it was hard for us to justify investing in the longer tail uh purview of content becoming like a valuable thing for us but i think it's i mean you're right like if you can first, you gotta, you do need to just get good at rented, right? Just like start getting something out there, start to figure out what's gonna work, and then once you start to do that, right? Like your rented stuff can also be your owned, and you can start to get a lot more feedback on the owned stuff once you are seeing exactly 
using a platform, say like you guys, where you can triangulate all this data together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> let's talk about how you guys are doing some of this yourself. I, I, like, let's get into the kind of the, the meta case study of, of Audience Plus. So uh, I was reading, right, that you guys have, you first of all, congratulations, you just hit your uh, your one year anniversary uh, recently, and you had posted about, you guys have your own, aud- your owned audience, your owned owned audience. Of, <laughs> That's kind of meta. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, of 3,000 plus subscribers, and you basically spent $0 on that so far. So how have you guys built up that subscriber list and how has that translated into revenue? Yeah, I mean, I think a part of it, and um, it's funny when you're the CEO now, you're like very self-conscious and they're like, oh man, we can be doing so much better at this. That's like the primary emotion now as we kind of think through it. But you know, I think a couple of the secrets that worked really well for us, one was consistency. So in terms of audience acquisition, that was a lot, um, the velocity was a lot higher the slopes and the graphs were a lot higher when we were consistently releasing content um and we're getting back into that now that next month here um and so the that we think about in terms of like what i call rhythm and jazz which is kind of weird but like rhythm is like what's the rhythm of the company in terms of producing and, re- and distributing content every week it's one episode one video one episode of a um video series that launches one newsletter exclusive to our subscribers Every month, it's one event, whatever it is, we have this rhythm and we stick with it. We're consistent. We distribute, we have a cadence. Um, and that gives us a pretty predictable amount of subscribers every month. I forget what it was, but in the earlier, and it's the law of small numbers where we are, but you know, I think we could count on something like a hundred subscribers a week just by doing our thing. Then jazz are the one-offs. Jazz are the, where you see the big spikes in the, the kind of subscriber acquisition channel uh, uh, plan. And that has come predominantly from collaborations, from partnerships, which again, in the B2B context is like, hey, you know, Salesforce is going to do a webinar with Gong and share the attendee list. And that's how we've done things in the past. It's great. But we're modernizing it and saying now we're doing collaborations, much like it's in the consumer context where we'll do a, you know, a road show with Mutiny. And that was one of the things that we did that had big spikes. And why is that interesting? Well, we're co-marketing and we're marketing it to their audience. And as folks are attending those programs, they're subscribing on our forums and they're joining our, our kind of community as a result. Um, podcasts like this one, like often, you know, drive, drive a lot speaking at an event. Um, one of the first slides I put up after my like introduction or whatever at an event is a giant QR code to subscribe to audience plus, um, and every stage, like you can get, you know, a certain cohort, a certain percentage of that audience, um, to subscribe. So those things don't scale um, at the end of the day, but they're where the bigger bumps come from. Um, so I imagine, you know, in one year of 3000, which again, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's, it's definitely a good, you know, starting point, uh, that we would just continue to do it. And then the beautiful thing about all of this is that, uh, it's compounding. And so this, the slope kind of stays, you know, the, the, the percentage growth kind of stays rather consistent, but then you're starting from a bigger base. People are telling their friends, you're, they're referring themselves, you know, others, your rented followership is growing. So when you do distribute, it's going to a bigger audience. Um, so that's, those are some of the things that, um, I think have contributed to our success is this rhythm and jazz kind of mentality. Yeah. I, I like that framework. And I think that's one of the things that has like continue, continually encourages me about content is that I will get someone like commenting or liking on a post that I made a week ago, two months ago, six months ago, 
every day. And it reminds you that the content that you're creating and putting out there is truly an asset that people can continue to engage with forever to come, right? Um, and so I think that's, um, I think that that mindset makes a lot of sense. And then I think the, right, the the collaborations, the podcast, the speaking at events, the QR code, that's a, that's a, a fun little hack. Um, and I, you mentioned at one point that you're getting back into the rhythm a little bit. So what happened? Like, did you guys fall out of rhythm and now you're bringing it back? I mean, even the, the companies that are doing this struggle sometimes to stay consistent. I mean, first of all, it's hard, like just acknowledging that it's, it's super hard. Um, you know, when we're, when you're a super young company, like we are like we're at 12 employees now, but, uh, the last two have really helped us accelerate. So we've seen the difference between 10 employees and less and 12. Um, and you know, I think in the first generation or the first eight months or so, we didn't launch the product. And so this was all we were doing was we were, at least on the marketing side, we were a straight up media company. And then I would have a swivel chair of like building the SaaS product and then producing content. So when you're, when you have a very small team and you know, you, you don't have a pipeline target on your back, you don't have like, you know, a lot of, uh, growth expectations or whatever, it was a lot easier to have the freedom to create. Uh, and so I think this, you know, the, the lesson here is, this is very real for many companies is, you know, you've got a big board meeting or a big conference or a big whatever. And now your eyes sort of taken off the ball in terms of content production and, and kind of keeping to the cadence. So, um, it, it, you know, we, man, I hated, I hated like that, that we sort of went dark for a little bit over the summer. Um, but we have a really good plan on getting back into it. We just op opened up an office where we now have a studio where we can just not have any excuses to get in there and start producing. Um, we've got some great shows of working up with some creators kind of in our space, um, as well. So, um, we're going to get back at it, but it definitely, I think cadence is probably one of the harder parts of content production. Um, we see it, we hear a lot of that from in the podcasting space, actually, it was like, you got to keep public, like, this is a long game. You got to keep on releasing new episodes. And I think that's, um, the case, whether you're a creator or whether you're a, a SaaS marketer in this next chapter. Yeah. I've found that it usually comes down to two things. It's mindset and systems. And right until you embrace the mindset that creating content is a part of your job, it's hard for you to justify time during the nine to five to actually do that. Right. But once you do that and you realize, Hey, like me creating this evergreen content is going to help pay the bills of everyone else. Then it becomes much easier to justify spending 30 minutes writing a post or right. Recording a podcast, whatever it is. And then from a system standpoint, I think there's a, People, people either build no systems or they make them way too complex. And I think the right way to do it is like build the minimum system that you need today and then add on a little bit tomorrow, right? And like slowly build that over time um, because like we've, I, I mean, I'm doing this podcast weekly right now and we are ahead of, we've got probably five or six episodes um, ahead of schedule that we need, right? But I still have to every week, we have to edit the podcast, we have to create the short clips and we write a newsletter about it. And we've been releasing those every Wednesday and I don't finish the newsletter till either late Tuesday night or like 5 a.m. on Wednesday morning. And it's like, I know that we'll, we'll eventually get to a better cadence there, or at least I'm, I'm hoping so, but it is a struggle even for people that are like studying and in this every single day. I think that's, I mean, that, and there's, I think it's, it's a good thing that we can say this and, and talk about it because I think it's true. And others that are, you know, that, that are 
feeling the same way or have had a similar experience, you know, um, can, can sort of feel validated. But I, I do think it's important. It's important for us, all of us to like, you know, to, to figure out how do we get ahead? How do we, you know, get some of the stuff in the can so that there's more predictability around it? Um, so yeah, it's definitely a, an ongoing challenge for sure. Yeah. Um, let's do one other little case study on you guys here for a second. So you guys have an event coming up, I think next week on how to budget own media for own media in 2024. Um, so like talk us through the strategy and process for this event, right? How'd you pick the topic? How'd you choose the speakers? How have you marketed it? Yeah. So we did one big event in May, which is a big launch event. Um, and we did it on LinkedIn, uh, which is sort of a counter counterintuitive perhaps, but you know, do we do it on the rented channel? Do we do it on the own channel? And what was an interesting learning is we had about 950 people register for it, but about 2,500 people watched it. Uh, and that can't happen on, on your webinar platform, right? That can only happen when virality is, is included because a bunch of people joined, you know, it promoted it to, you know, their networks and literally there was some built-in virality. So we knew we wanted to do an event in the fall. Um, and we, we were pretty sure we want to on LinkedIn as well. And just to kind of, kind of get that, um, you know, unlock more virality around, around the moment. Um, you know, one of the things for, I don't know if you say early markets, but a lot of companies who are talking about something new is it's really difficult, even in the best of times to get people to buy something when it's not budgeted uh, at the end of the day. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure on finding ways to justify an investment in a piece of software or zooming out even a new initiative or a new practice. Um, and anyway, I saw this at Gainsight with customer success, like that we did a ton of work, especially in the early days, like getting people to understand what customer success is, to be excited about it. There was like an, an army of early adopters that believed it, but then we're like, do you want to buy software? They're like, oh no, like we have no budget for this, but I totally love what you guys are doing. As a SaaS company, that's a hard, a hard position to be in. And so what we started doing at Gainsight was investing in like middle funnel content development, but promoting it at the top of the funnel. So it's a little bit of a, a hack, but we started saying, okay, well, what are the things that typically we need to do in order to um, buy software? Well, you need to understand how to justify it to your boss, how to talk about ROI, as we talked about earlier, how to show, show finance the data, um, how to budget for it. Maybe there's an RFP process for certain companies. And so with Gainsight, we built all that, built all the assets. We built all the kind of coaching and we evangelized it to people that were excited about the, the broader category. And so, you know, we're getting to the back half of the year and now we're setting the stage for 2024. And at least in the B2B software space, a lot of the budget decisions, um, I don't know if they're completely locked, but certainly a lot of the parameters are locked by... November, um, you know, the latest, maybe December, if we're just a little bit behind. And so we wanted to make that the theme of this event. So in terms of thinking about the agenda, we, um, I've gotten to know John Miller, who's the co-founder of Marketo pretty well over the last few years. And he released a blog post, which was just amazing timing for us, but, uh, th uh saying that, the the marketing playbook that I helped create doesn't work anymore. Like that was the title of the post, which was like, mana from heaven in terms of the, uh, um, you know, the relevancy for, for this industry and coming from him, he's the only person in the world that for him and whoever started inbound marketing at HubSpot can say that, and we have to listen. 
And so he's, we asked him to come keynote for us to talk more about that and set the stage for why we need something new in 2024. Then I was going to come up and share a little bit of like tips and tricks for how to kind of frame this conversation with um, their CEOs. Then we needed some industry validation. And so we got um, uh, a content marketing person from a uh, company called Qualified that is doing own media really well. And then a head of marketing from Clue, uh, a company that's also doing own media really well. And we're going to facilitate a conversation on how they got budget approval, how they talk about impact with their CFO to kind of get some real life context. And then uh, just to have some fun with it from a format perspective, we got an actual CFO uh, to for me to basically riff with and try to get into their minds on how they're making purchasing, how they're approving things or not. And this CFO is kind of funny because he's also a media personality. He's built a brand and a followership of like 12,000 people. So he's promoting and distributing the show, the event in his audience. Um, so there's a little bit of like a one plus one equals three there. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the, the idea and the hope is again, I think with what we're seeing with events, virtual events, digital events, plus kind of content is it, it'd be great to get again, 2,500 plus people to watch it. That'd be awesome. We're going to send it to a bunch of prospects, a bunch of customers, those types of things. But the content will live on on Audience Plus, and so we'll forever have these you know incredible resources that we can send people to to help justify an investment in the broader category, and hopefully set the stage for for purchasing Audience Plus as well. I think that makes total sense, right? So the um, right this your playbook for this, right? It's the same is essentially the same that you were talking about before, where you where people might be in the buying decision or middle funnel for you guys are marketers or marketing leaders that want to do some type of own media, but they don't necessarily know how to navigate, like how to pitch it to their CFO. And like, they need a few more compelling uh, selling points for why they should be doing this. And you're going to obviously like bring those people to the event, but also then you can then promote it wherever to all marketers to drive some more top of funnel leads. Exactly. Because your audience isn't all, you know, of course, people you're talking to. You mentioned like the person that's commenting on posts you had a few months ago. Um, it's it's for that person too, uh, who says like, hey, I'm following. I've never said anything or maybe I'm just like liking or commenting, but I believe, I believe that this is the next generation of digital marketing. Um, but I don't, I'm not empowered to help in instrument change in my business. I'll watch this thing. I'll download the ebook. I'll like, you know, whatever. And hopefully that will frame a conversation so that when they do come in the request a demo form or whatever, they're like, I have budget to do this next year. Or I, you know, and, and as part and the value chain there was that we didn't just help as a software provider. We helped as a strategic partner to this stranger who just saw this content that we were producing. So I think that there's some power there also, just like the, the relationship that we're able to scale through programs like this. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. It's actually, so I come from a sales background myself and that was one of the things that people missed the most was at the end of a demo call or a discovery call is they didn't help the prospect figure out how they needed to buy and what steps they needed to take, right? Like there, you sell this thing every day. They buy this thing once a year, if that, and you you need to be the expert that coaches them through that process. Totally, totally. Great. Um. All right, let's let's talk about your career and kind of the the founder life a bit more. I'm, I'm really curious about some of this stuff. So, you had you spent almost eight years at Gainsight, right? Um, and then you you had a couple stops at Front and Hopin. 
And those were much shorter, right? 13, 16 months. And so there were probably different experiences, but I'm curious, how would you describe your time at each of those companies and walk us through kind of your reason for leaving each of those? Yeah. So I joined Front, um, so after Gainsight, maybe it's worth, worth telling the story. Like, you know, it's so funny. When do you leave a company you love, right? Like our, our equity incentives are built around four year, like, you know, tur- uh, tours of duty or whatever. And I went through two tours of duty and it just felt like time. Like I love Nick is still a good, good friend and an investor and board member at audience plus. So it, it, w- it was not a, you know, bad situation at all. In fact, quite the opposite, but it just felt like it was time. And so I, I wanted to start a company and, uh, you know, countered, or I thought I did, I guess. Uh, and I became an EIR at battery ventures, um, stayed there for a little bit, didn't have the right idea. Couldn't find the right co-founder, those types of things. And that's, I think what clicked for me. I'm like, okay, um, entrepreneurship life is not for me. Founder life, go back to being an operator. And I met Matilda at front along the way. And, you know, front is, a incredible product first of all like i i literally i tweeted yesterday can't work without front ever again i've brought it into a bunch, every company i've been a part of ever since uh and the idea was to be there for for the long haul like i really you know it was a very like product ip driven business with not a lot of brand or community ip uh and so it felt like i could make an impact quite a bit in, in that in that um bucket of of work um the only reason i left the only reason was I got swept off my feet by hopping. Like I mentioned earlier in the call, events were such a core part of what we did at Gainsight. And I think, you know, at my, the root of all my roots, I'm an event marketer. I think at the end of the day, if I had to like really identify with a specific practice, I love the power of in-person events, virtual, like just, you know, being able to have that human connection. I think is such a powerful part of marketing. Um, so... I left, made a very hard decision to leave front to go join Hopin, which at the time was, you know, the hottest company in the world, the fastest growing. It it was, it was insane. I remember watching the valuation just like skyrocket and skyrocket. And like, maybe that should have been my, my canary of the coal mine, but like, oh shit, like this is not sustainable. But like, I remember telling, like, I remember telling my wife about it. I remember telling like random, like strangers on the street, like you cannot believe how quickly this company's valuation has increased. It's insane. It went from like 10 to 60 million in one year, um, or less than that. I think like five to 60 million in one year. And then the plan was to go from 60 to like 120 or something when, when, you know, for part of our year. So it was just, just wild, um, acquiring companies. I literally, um, this is both a, uh, good thing and a bad thing to say this, but like, uh, I built pound for pound, the best marketing team I think ever assembled that the world will never know. Uh, in, in that like 10 month, uh, in 10 of those months, at least before we had to break it all down, uh, very sadly. Talk about that for a second. Talk about that, that marketing team, like what made them so great? What made it great is like, again, you're coming into like a fast, fast paced company that is growing very quickly with no marketing spend. So the CAC to LTV was like insane. So they're like, go spend money, go build the team. Let's, you know, build the generational marketing team. That's going to make this like the next you know, zoom or whatever. And so I extended a lot of my personal capital to go and get like the people who I've met along the way who were the best at their craft. I'm talking like, you know, the best demand marketer that I had ever seen was on our team. 
the best brand marketer who came from Airbnb and the consumer kind of emotional, you know, going back to our conversation construct. Uh, and in doing so, uh, they then built their teams and brought their stars with them. And so, you know, you just looked around the room for like our marketing offsites and you're like, oh my gosh, the things that we're going to do together is just insane. And it's soul crushing that, that we're, we're not able to do that. Um, so why did I leave? I think a few things, you know, but, but the biggest one was I wanted to build audience plus at Hopin. Like this was the vision for, um, how we were going to go from being a single product company, which is really optimized around a very commoditized experience, right around like, you know, you can do use HubSpot or if Goldcast is a dollar cheaper, you can use Goldcast or Airmeet or whatever the next one was. And the thing that I was really calling for was that what mattered most to the marketer is the audience. It doesn't matter what the channel is. Like there's a million tools that are creator tools for B2B marketers that you can use. But what matters is the audience and the audience data and being able to make sense of that data, talk about the impact of all of these things in aggregate on revenue. And, you know, that wasn't something that the company I think was interested in, in doing. And so as we were sort of looking to build our own kind of Salesforce plus like experience, we're like, well, okay, there's got to be something off the shelf that's going to help us do this, even in a world where things weren't going, you know, or the, the, the signal was that the company wasn't going to reach its fullest potential. Uh, and there wasn't anything off the shelf. And so that's for me, it was like, I'm, it's, you know, I'm going to run towards this idea and start this business. Um, that, you know, in my mind's eye, I think was Hoppin's opportunity for the taking. Yeah. What was, when you were leaving, was, did you see writing on the wall about the valuation starting to change direction or was it like, where were you, where was your departure versus the potential fall from grace? Um, so when the first layoff happened, I asked to be a part of it. I was like, lay me off. I, I this is not, uh, um, this isn't going to work, you know, and, and to their credit, they were incredibly, um, gracious with that. So, you know, it's very easy for them to say, no, like, like, no, like stay, like, this is your job, like finish this. Um, and you know, at that point we had taken our team down by like 40% or something, the team that we had just built, the team that we had just extended the personal capital to, to pull together. Um, and so the, um, at that point I had conviction around starting the company, um, around the future of, um, for audience plus, uh, to create audience plus, you know, I felt like they were not interested in that idea. I got clarity and approval from them in writing that they don't want to pursue that idea. And in fact, that they were actually champions for me to go and start it. Um, you know, they, they helped effectively fund the, the start of the business by, by letting me kind of be a part of this layoff. Um, so that's what it was for me. It was like pretty early. Um, so December ish, I think of 21. Um, and you know, I wish them the best, by the way, I think now they've actually made a lot of strategic moves with doubling down on Streamyard, which is really, you know, the, the best of breed, you know, in terms of kind of what their, um, what, what their potential is for the company. So I, I wish the company success. I'm still a shareholder of the company. Um, but that was sort of for me. I think the moment where it was sort of my time to leave. Yeah. Okay. That's fascinating that you asked to be a part of the layoff, but I think that makes sense, especially, right. You, you finally got the conviction that you wanted to start your own thing. Um, how has that your, so you worked at a few venture back companies now and advised a bunch, you've had different types of rides at, at each of them. 
How has that shaped the way that you're building your team and the way that you're thinking about equity? Interesting. Um, well, <laughs> I definitely, it's interesting because Gainsight was like a long slog. Um, it still is like, but seven years, like we had a lot of evangelism to do. Um, and so that journey was probably not even your typical kind of SaaS company building kind of motion. Um, and so that was category creation. And so one thing that we're thinking about audience plus is like, we don't want to create a category. Yeah. We're educating the market around like on media, but we're really trying to build the next generation of HubSpot Marketo. Like that's ultimately kind of what we're, what we're trying to introduce. Uh, if inbound marketing was 1.0 own media is, is 2.0. Um, so one of the decisions was like, let's not make, let's not try to create a category here with audience plus. Um, the second thing from front was seeing both the product led versus the kind of sales led kind of motions. And, um, you know, I think from a, I don't know, I want to say I, I, I'm just not a huge advocate for product led growth. Uh, I, I think that's fine, but I think there's, there's a lot of risk, uh, from a, uh, churn perspective by leading with product led growth for some companies it makes a lot of sense, but that helped shape our decision around how we'd go to market, uh, being more of a sales led kind of business. Uh, it might take us longer to get the growth curve going, but as we do, it's more sustainable, healthy cohorts of revenue. Um, and then the third bit with Hopin was, you know, the valuation stuff. Like, I, I think there was definitely an addiction towards like the valuation. Um, and especially in this economic climate, like we are, we have no ego about that. Like we want to build a long term, you know, sustainable company and we want to do it the right way. So we're not like punch drunk off of, um, you know, the highest valuation. We just want to get the right valuation for the business. And more importantly, just capitalize the right way to get to the next, the next milestone. Uh, so that's, that's informed my thinking on the equity side, um, from that, that experience. Yeah. What, what do you think is that next milestone for you guys when you may have to, or may look to raise again? Yeah. We'll probably look to do the series A pretty soon. Um, you know, but the, the way those conversations would go is like, well, how much do we need to get to the series B, uh, versus like, yeah, I think we're worth this, you know what I mean? And that's sort of like the 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 hype cycle of 21 i think the founders had a lot of leverage to sort of set the price and i think that leverage is completely gone or at least on the other side of the table now uh and so i think you know for us is can we find the right partner that can capitalize us to the right amount of capital to get us to the series b which you know is roughly call it close to 10 million of arr probably when you want to kind of do the the b um so that's kind of the the approach that, that we're taking you said you guys started as a media company and then well, I think always with the design of, of building the SaaS product, did were, were you guys making money as a media company before? No, we started, it's a, it was a SaaS company from day one, but while we were building the, the product, like, like as like the initial lines of code were being written, we were producing content. And what we were talking about was the problem. We weren't talking about the product at all, but we were talking about this idea that, you know, these new mediums have entered the, the, the equation and B2B companies are still focused on like written content from an SEO point of view. Um, you know, so there's, there's, we, we sort of just created content around it, but we didn't monetize it as like a revenue stream or ads or anything along those lines. So we, so we were a media company, but we weren't actually like a full on media business or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Very helpful. Um, I'll, uh, more personal question for a second. And I think about some of the parallels in my own life. 
right? I've got my wife and, and young family. Um, I, I saw right in the old Pepperdine article, you mentioned how important it was that you met your wife, Brittany at Pepperdine. And I'm curious, right? Like you've been on, like you've had a pretty awesome career so far by like objective standards, I would say. Um, so what kind of, or like how meaningful has she been to your business life? Because I think my, I know my wife has been pretty meaningful to mine. Yeah. Super valuable, like unbelievably valuable. Um, you know, finding the right partner in life that is going to, you know, champion you, that is going to, you know, depending on, and of course, you know, this could sit on either side of the relationship, but sacrifice, you know, on behalf of, you know, your goals and your dreams. And, um, it's, it's definitely like you could see how, you know, potentially marrying the wrong person or having the wrong partnership could, you know, be headwind for some of these things. And I think a lot of that comes from just making sure we have the shared sort of sense of, you know, purpose for who we are and the type of family we want to build. And also just like the awareness and her hearing from me that like, that comes first, like this work thing's great and it's important. And I talk about it not as an identity that I have or at all, but like a fulfillment of my purpose. One of men being a father is a, and a good father is a fulfillment of my purpose and, and so many other things. So when we have that sort of core foundation set, then there's sort of some freedom to go and and work hard to start a company. It wasn't some it wasn't a decision I made without her. Let's be let's be very clear. But um, you know, it it just wouldn't work. It wouldn't work without having someone who is a, you know, just a great partner to make sure that we're kind of building the family that we want first and that this work kind of opportunity and experience can can fit as part of that. Um, to help support you on the tough days, um, really hard, really hard to do this. I'm learning super, super hard. Uh, and so having someone support you is, uh, is unbelievable. And Brittany's just been like amazing for, um, for the entire journey coming up on 10 years of marriage now, which is kind of, wow. Wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, it is like, we, we need someone to keep us humble when things are good, right. When it feels like everything in the, in the world is conspiring for us, but you need someone to support you because there's like, there's plenty of things that no other experience or schooling could have prepared you for in the life of startups and entrepreneurship. Um, all right. So this, the show is called Frame Breakers because I love when people have their own frames broken or they talk about things in a different way that might be contrarian. So is there, is there any experience that you've had in your life that kind of broke the frame or like a really strong belief that you held? Uh, beyond what we've already covered in, on the marketing and they're, you know, being dropped into a marketing job, never having done marketing before. Um, and rather than, you know, doing the predictable revenue playbook page by page, but like trying things that are consumer focused. I think that was really kind of what, and seeing that it resonated, I think that was on, from a professional perspective, at least the thing that, uh, broke my frame in terms of marketing. I, like I see marketing as a practice different than most B, I think B2B marketers do. And I think that's changing, but I'm like, when I wake up and I'm like perceiving what my job is, it feels very different than what others do on my personal side, you know, like. I, I've I've definitely like realized that 
counterintuitively, the more you sort of, not the more, but the more you invest in disconnecting and rest and not being on your phone, like those types of things, not only do I feel better from a mental health perspective, but you're actually better at work. You're better in the six days of the week where you're like working hard if you take that one day and disconnect and not do everything you can to not think about work. And that is hard because it's one thing not be at your laptop, but to turn your brain off, especially when you're starting a company, very difficult, it takes discipline, it takes practice. Um, but what if I, I'm as I'm going to this weekend, I have a lot of stuff I got to get done for sure. But I'm like, if for in order for me to make it happen, I have to be present with my family on Saturday. I have to throw my phone into a drawer somewhere. I've got to go to soccer, the soccer game and, you know, spend a lot of time like tricking my brain into not thinking about work. Uh, and in so doing, not only will, again, I show up as a, hopefully a better husband and father and create some mental space for myself, but come Sunday afternoon when I have to like pick back up again, uh, it's going to be better. And Monday morning, I'll have less of the scaries or whatever, you know, and I'll be just more equipped for my week. Yeah, it's so true. And it's like, it's, it's so difficult to do, but like changing your environment is the easiest way to do that. And you said, throw your phone in the drawer. Funny, like the, the time my brain gets the most rest is I go to the, the gym at the Y and then I'll go to the sauna for like 10 minutes afterwards. And I'm not bringing my phone into the sauna. And I'm like, so I've got nothing. It's just me, my thoughts, and like a few other naked dudes. <laughs> um, I respect the rules. I, I always wear a towel. But, go towel. Um, yeah, but it's just, it, that's always where like my brain feels really refreshed. Um, all right, la last question I want to get you out of here on. We are all working on things. And oftentimes we know what we need to do, but we don't actually do it. So if you were your own coach or advisor, what's the most impactful thing you'd be coaching or advising yourself on? Uh, in terms of work, like advising myself on? You know, I, uh, I put a pretty big premium on like responsiveness um, and making sure that we like fulfill like what we said we were going to do, that sort of thing. And so I've... I've become somewhat maniacal about my email inbox. Maybe it's my time at front that I think helped contribute to that. But in terms of creating sort of an operating system for how you work um, is really important. And part of that isn't just to drive business results, but I really think relationships are the undercurrent for, for business. And I, I invoke the sort of golden rule around email where, you know, if you were trying to send someone a, an email to get an answer, and you're just waiting on them to do your job because you haven't heard back. Like, how would you feel if you were waiting and putting myself in their shoes? I'm like, well, if somebody's trying to, maybe this doesn't extend all the way to like every SDR email that, that hits the inbox, but like a prospect, a customer, an employee, a teammate, an investor, a partner. Um, if, if I am not getting back to them within 24 hours is my, my goal. I'm not always perfect on it. Um, then I feel like I'm letting them down. Uh, so that's, that's my like coaching is like, how do you set up an operating system for how you work? Thinking about whether the inbox being the space where we do work, that's my system, uh, in order to follow up on all the right things and to do it in a timely manner. Yeah. Well, I think the golden rule of, of email, I think is a, a great frame to think about it. Um, all right, let's, let's get you out of here. Final plug where people can find you in audience plus. Yeah. Audienceplus.com. Um, you can subscribe there for our content. Uh, or I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit as well, my rented strategy. So we'll see, you know, just look me up on LinkedIn as well. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Anthony. This was great. I'm sure people will get a lot of valuable insight from this. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it.